The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? The gospel of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The feeding of the 4,000 is a curtain call on the first half of the book of Mark. Up till now, Jesus has been in a flurry of activity. I always think of that movie. Denzel Washington, man on fire. Jesus is a man on fire, the first half of Mark. He's teaching, he's healing the sick, he's casting out demons wherever he goes. And echoes of hope are starting to sound in the hearts of the people of God. Is Jesus of Nazareth the promised one? Will he restore Israel to its former glory? And this miracle takes place in non-Jewish territory. And so that hope, the hope of God to break in and restore creation has been, is being extended to the nations. And Jesus is waving a, uh, riding a wave of popular support. When's the last time 4,000 people followed you around? And yet, as the curtain comes down, Jesus is being interrogated by the Pharisees and misunderstood by his closest friends. Are your hearts hardened? Do you still not understand? 
That's the question I want to reflect on this morning. Why do we struggle to understand and grasp who Jesus is? I organize my thoughts here under three headings. I want to talk about our true hunger, our real problem, and the heart of Jesus. First, our true hunger. The, the feeding of the 4,000 is, uh, is a repeat miracle, as it were. Two chapters earlier in the story, Jesus feeds 5,000. But there are differences in those miracles, besides for just the numbers. Uh, we're told, for example, in Mark 6, that the 5,000 who were fed were all men. And they were all Jewish men. And they were of the activist sort. After the miracle, they wanted to make Jesus their king. In Mark 8, in our lesson, Jesus is in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, which, as I said, is non-Jewish or Gentile territory. These people were not steeped in Jewish traditions. They were just hungry out in the middle of nowhere. And Jesus says, in effect, this is a public health crisis. If we don't feed these people, they might die. Let's, let's think about that for a moment. The crowd which had gathered around Jesus were not Austinites unable to fend for themselves without cell service and Uber Eats. These were people who understood survival. Why in the world would they follow this 30-year-old Jewish rabbi out in the middle of nowhere at the risk of their own lives? What were they thinking? The only answer I can come up with is that they could... They, could, they must have not been able to take their eyes off Jesus. There must have been something about him which drew them out. Some magnetism. The, the combination of, of courage and kindness. He was so powerful but so disarming. At the end of verse chapter 7, Mark tells us, that the crowd was overwhelmed with amazement who Jesus was. And they said among themselves, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They were hungry for Jesus, in other words. And their hunger for him was greater than their hunger for food. It was greater than their hunger for the comforts of home and the familiarity of their own traditions. These people did not know who Abraham was, or Isaac, or Jacob. Moses and the liberation from Egypt was not their story. They didn't have this prophetic Old Testament thing to help them understand what was happening. Israel, of which Jesus, you know, typified, considered these people unclean, second-class citizens, outsiders, and they didn't care. All they knew is that this man answered some deep question in their souls, that he was awakening some dormant spiritual hunger within them, even if they didn't know they had it. 
I, I want to underscore what Mark is telling us here about humankind. He's saying that everyone hungers for Jesus. Not just religious people, not just the upright, not just the thoughtful and the contemplative. contemplative. Everyone hungers for Jesus. I do not think these 4,000 people woke up that morning and thought, you know, our traditions, our rituals, our culture, it's getting stale. There's a rabbi across the lake. Let's try that on for size. No, these were people busy with their jobs and families and Netflix queues. They were just like us. But they met our Lord face to face, and that one encounter with Jesus changed everything. I know a lot of you drink coffee. It'd be like, you know, two-week-old Folgers, and then you get a rich, expertly pulled shot of espresso. How could they go back? They did not know it, but they had been looking for Jesus their entire lives. So what I'm trying to say here is that Jesus is this universal thing. Now, do you, do you buy that? Is that true? What is it about him and about us that makes that true? Well, there's a, there's a very important verse in first chapter of Colossians. I've actually heard Peter preach on it here. It's probably the most, one of the most, elegant and exalted descriptions of who Jesus is in the entire New Testament. The author says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you think about Genesis 1, we're in the image of God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. All things were made through him, and all things were created for him. Now, if that's true, here's one thing that surely means. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. You were created in him. You were created through him. You were made in his image. You resonate with what he is and what he's about at some deep level. You carry his spark within you. You were created in him, and you were created for him. You were not designed to live apart from him. If you feed on him, you won't stay hungry. If you believe in him, your thirst will be quenched. And if you don't, your soul will wither. You will be spiritually malnourished. Now, if I had more time and if I was maybe a bit more creative, I could think of some cool illustrations to help this thing become more memorable or some logic to help you feel the force of the Bible's teaching, but I don't. And so I just want to say, I think this is true, that Jesus, not the ways he's been misrepresented or misinterpreted, but the actual Jesus, his person and his work, is what your soul longs for. He is our true hunger. Now, if you really believe that, why would you feast on anything else? Why would you dig the Folgers can out of the freezer if the espresso machine is on the counter? That's my second point. 
are not the espresso machine. <laughs> Our real problem. If Jesus is what we long for and, and what we resonate with at some deep level, why is the spiritual life so complicated and so filled with fits and starts? That's my second point, our real problem. Now, I want to look now, if you're following along, with verses 14 through 21. And I, what I want you to see at the outset is that Jesus is taking on the role of a prophet. Watch out, he says. Be careful. Wake up. Take note. Well, to what? What is Jesus warning us about? Verse 15, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What in the world is that? Leaven. Leaven is like a, a fungus. The word is actually rendered yeast in other translations. I'm not a big baker, but I know enough to know that you put yeast in a ball of dough, and one cell at a time, it multiplies itself. And it, it shapes and transforms the dough and gives it the character of bread. It's interesting, I kind of discovered this this week. The biblical authors use leaven as a metaphor a lot, but more often than not, it's a negative metaphor or an analogy. As if to say, leaven is something that malforms. Leaven is something that corrupts. Now, this is strong, but I don't think it's going too far to say that a modern equivalent for leaven might be something like cancer. It's a diseased group of cells that recreates and spreads throughout the body, and it, it can be fatal. So Jesus says, watch out, be careful. Why? Because if you don't, you might end up like the Pharisees. Or one day you'll wake up in the mirror, or you'll wake up, look in the mirror, and you'll be just like Herod. This is harsh. These are Jesus' closest friends. They've given up everything to cast their lot with him. Why does he compare them to the Pharisees and Herod? Why is he lumping them all together? Now, this is going to sound self-referential, but what I'm about to say is very important. Jesus is not like people on Twitter. Jesus does not divide the world into friends and enemies, into sacred and profane, to, to right or the left, religious or irreligious. Jesus has compassion on everybody, and Jesus says that everybody carries the same fatal flaw. And that fatal flaw, I want to say, that, that leaven of the Pharisees and Herod is unbelief. That's what Jesus is warning us against in this passage in a single word, unbelief. Having eyes but not seeing, having ears but not hearing. Unbelief, lack of faith, call it whatever you want, it doesn't matter. Where do I see that? Where is that in this story, or how is it embodied in the narrative? Well, think about what happens for a minute. Jesus feeds 4,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. That's amazing. Have you ever seen anyone do that? It's a miracle. And in response, the Pharisees come right out and say, cool trick. Now show us a sign. Give us some evidence. 
We need a reason to believe you are who you say you are. And Jesus says no. Jesus refuses. Why? Because he knows these are not earnest seekers hungering for spiritual truth. The Pharisees do not need more evidence. Jesus just said, just fed 4,000 people. They're trying to undermine him. And they don't, they don't get who he is and what he's about. Now, it's not adversarial, but, but the disciples struggle with the very same thing. And we see it right at the end of our lesson. Jesus is reviewing, as it were, the evidence with them. He says, you know, 5,000 people I fed, how many loaves of bread were left over? Are the 4,000, how many, seven? And you're still hung up that you didn't bring enough food? Do you still not understand? You know, I get the sense, I had to take physics in college. I did not do very well. And I get the sense that, uh, that the disciples are looking at Jesus like I used to look at my physics professor, like vectors, I just don't get it. <laughs> and either Jesus picked the 12 stupidest people he could find through whom to build his church, <laughs> or... It's funny, the things people laugh at are not what you expect. <laughs> or the problem with the disciples and the problem with us is not simply the lack of evidence. That our, the struggle to grasp who Jesus is is not only the lack of evidence. The Leaven of unbelief, it goes deeper than that. It's the absence of trust. It's an unwillingness to surrender. It's, it's just refusing. You, know, you might recognize that Jesus has historical import, but it's not making that qualitative leap to say, you are my Lord. I'm going to surrender and submit to you. We have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear. And Jesus offers the Pharisees and Herod as a kind of a case study of this idea of unbelief. They embody that which keeps us from understanding Jesus. Now consider, let's just think about each of them for a moment. Herod is the puppet king of Rome. He is the governor, the leader of Israel, politically. Everything Jesus has done points to the fact that he is the true king, not Herod. And the Pharisees, they are the guardians, the stewards of God's law. They're more excited about the Bible than anybody else. Everything that Jesus has done points to the reality that he is the embodiment of God's law. He is the interpreter the fulfillment of that law. But both of them, despite the evidence, reject him. Why? Because Jesus is a threat to them. Because if they were to recognize Jesus for who he is, they would be out of a job. Herod is no longer the true king. The Pharisees are no longer the guardians, the experts in the law. And I don't know this, but it's not hard for me to imagine that the Herod and the Pharisees built their whole lives around the seats of authority they occupy. Jesus was a, a personal 
threat to them. To acknowledge and accept Jesus for who he is would have meant they would have had to throw everything away. So despite the evidence, despite the miracles, despite the teaching, they reject him. They, maybe they don't reject him here. What they do, which is probably more important, is they equivocate. They dance around. They ask for more evidence. And the more and more they look at him and say no, the harder and harder their hearts become. Their eyes grow duller. Their ears more clogged. Watch out. Be careful. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. I uh, learned this week about one of the, the first concentration camps that was liberated by the Allies at the end of World War II. It was in this city in central Germany that I tried to learn how to pronounce, and I never got it, so I'm not going to try. The Allies came upon it so suddenly, the Germans had no time to remove the evidence of the mass murders. Hundreds upon hundreds of dead bodies greeted them, the Allies, when they arrived. General George Patton, who was uh, not a brittle person, immediately threw up when he arrived. It was that horrific and mind-boggling. Well, the Allies wanted the German people who lived in the nearby town to know what took place there. And so General Patton himself got the mayor and his wife to lead a procession from the town to the camp where they dug graves and buried the bodies. The next day, that couple, the mayor and his wife, hung themselves, and they left a suicide note that said, we didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. Jesus is warning us in this passage, watch out. You know, but you don't know. You have eyes, but you don't see. Ears, but you don't hear. Beware of unbelief. Now, important qualifier. Are doubts real? Of course. Are there troubling questions about God and the Bible and perhaps most of all, the church? Absolutely. I am emphatically not trying to tell a story about the Christian faith, which means leaving your brain at the door. But what I am trying to say is that for some of us, our hesitancy, our ambivalence, our unbelief is not abstract and pristine and intellectual. It's more personal. Jesus means reorienting stuff about our lives. And we naturally or understandably resist that. You know, for example, Jesus talks a lot about money and the manner in which we spend our money and relate to our money. And so taking Jesus seriously means having to rethink how we spend our money. You know, one thing I've been thinking a lot about is Jesus forces me to be ruthlessly honest with myself in answer to this question. Am I doing anything to improve the material lives of the poor in our city? Am I doing anything? Another question I've been thinking a lot about is, am I diluting, 
the teaching of Jesus in his word because it puts me on the wrong side of cultural trends. Am I resisting Jesus, questioning Jesus, keeping Jesus at a distance, not because of a lack of evidence, but because deep down I believe that I'm a better judge of what is good for me than Jesus himself? But if it's true that we were created in Jesus and for Jesus, if it's true that we resonate with him, then surrendering to him is the one thing that will make us truly human. It's the one thing that will draw out the best version of ourselves. I read a quote this week from, or I heard a quote, Miroslav Volf. He talked about faith like this. Faith tells us that we do not exist simply to accumulate possessions, power, or knowledge, to receive accolades and enlarge our egos. How empty such a life would be if faith denies anything, he says. It denies that we are tiny, self-obsessed specks of matter who are reaching for the stars but remain hopelessly nailed to the earth, stuck in our own self-absorption. What's he saying there? It's really simple. Faith sets us free. Faith liberates us. It draws out the best version of ourselves. Do you believe that? Or do you still not understand? Jesus is our true hunger. Problem is that we don't trust him. You know, the, it's the quote on the front of your bulletin. The antithesis to faith is not doubt, it's control. How do we move forward? Final point, we have to know his heart. We have to see and, and feel his heart. I noted at the outset of this little sermon here, that Jesus is, is riding this wave of popular support. He's on the cover of the New York Times. Everyone is talking about him. But the closer you look, the more you see that Jesus, in this moment of popularity and acclaim and celebrity, is profoundly alone. His friends, who he has invested all of himself in, don't understand who he is. And his would-be allies, the Pharisees, are beginning to hatch a conspiracy against him. Jesus, he must have been frustrated and incredibly lonely. Here was the Son of God who for all eternity enjoyed the fellowship and love of the Father in the Holy Spirit. He had never been alone. And of course, the irony, right, is that God had stepped on the scene in Christ because we were the ones who were in trouble. Jesus is being treated as an, an alien, but we were the ones who were in exile. And he came to get us out, to, to rescue us from our despair. And Jesus knows that 
no matter how profound his teaching may be, no matter how undisputed his miracles may be, that will never be enough. Jesus knows, even now in this story, that he's going to have to go all the way down to set us free, to plunge all the way in to the human experience. You see uh, verse 2? It says, Jesus had compassion on the crowds. Now, some of you know that word compassion, it, it, has, uh, it connotates one's actual vital inner organs, like your gut, your lungs, your heart, your kidneys. To have compassion is to, to wrap your emotional organs around the pain and suffering of others. It's to feel the pain and suffering of others at the deepest level and to hold there, to move in to that place. Now look also at verse 12. Here are the people who will ultimately be responsible for putting Jesus to death. And what does it say? Jesus smacked them around? No. Jesus let out a deep sigh, a groan. I have heard a preacher describe this as a sigh of grief in the innermost chamber of his heart. It's not far from compassion. And for his own enemies, compassion. Jesus knows that behind, this is, this is why I was saying earlier about Jesus not dividing people. Jesus knows that behind and beneath the opposition of the Pharisees is the same leaven of unbelief that we carry. They knew but didn't know that what they needed was him. I believe that when Jesus looks at me and that when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't see your faithfulness or hypocrisy, your religiosity or your irreligiosity. I mean, he sees that, but that's inches deep. Jesus goes all the way down to the inner organs of your soul. This is so cliche, but remember that dashboard confessional song? The places you have come to fear the most. Thanks, Blake. Thought you'd like that. All the way down. And Jesus says, I'm going to set you free there. How? Does he teach us out of our misery? Hardly. The Gospel of John tells us that when Jesus hung on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and let out a deep sigh. It was that same cry of compassion as he plunged into the depths of the cosmic loneliness of hell. Why? Well, for me and for you. So that we could come home. The one who lived in the bosom of the Father traded places with us so we could have a place at the banqueting table he was estranged, he was cast out so that we could become sons and daughters of the Most High. 
So what I want to say is wake up and smell the aroma of Jesus' compassion for you, whether you're his enemy or his friend, whether you're devoted or doubting. Jesus doesn't care. He went all the way down. He plunged in for you. Our true hunger, our real problem, and the heart of Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.